Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together in this place to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ and Christ alone, knowing that he has paid the debt that we could not have paid and has given us the righteousness that we never could have earned. We thank you, Father, that we have the privilege of worshiping him. We thank you, Father, that he has given us eternal life. And we pray, Father, that as we think upon who he is and what you have accomplished through him and what you do in raising your church up to be the church that is the light in this world, that you would give us understanding of your scriptures, that you would give us understanding of those who are to lead your church. We thank you, Father, that you have set watchmen on the wall. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to raise up men to speak the truth in our day and that you would bring about an awakening in your church, that you would revive your church and use it to penetrate into the darkness of this world. Pray, Father, that you would continue to add unto your church as you have promised to do. Even this day as the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world, we pray that many would come into your kingdom. We thank you, Father, that light is penetrating the darkness and that many will come unto you to worship you in truth and spirit. Pray, Father, that you would grow us in the knowledge of your truth this day as we study your word and that your spirit would work in our lives and bring conviction of sin and bring commitment unto Christ. Pray, Father, for those who are unable to be with us. You know their reasons and their needs, and we pray that you minister to them and that you would bring them back to us. We pray, Father, for Conrad M. Bayway and his family and the loss of his son, and pray that you would comfort them as only you can and that you would use his life to be a testimony to others and that through this day of sorrow and through the funeral, Father, that you would use it to bring many to Christ as the gospel is proclaimed. We thank you, Father, that you are the one that is able to comfort your people as they walk to the valley of the shadow of death, and we give you praise and honor for that. We pray that you would bless our time together and that all that would be said and done would be pleasing to you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and we'll read verses 1 through 5. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 4. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will put And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of evangelists, and fulfill your ministry. Why is it said that 80% of the people in Rankin County are unchurched? Why do the majority of Southern Baptist churches only have about 35% of their members attending each week to worship? Why are so many church members not able to truly understand the work of God in salvation? I believe the main reason is due to unfaithful pastors fulfilling the duty that God calls them to. God's truth has not been taught 
in many churches for years and numerous generations have raised up without any absolute truth. E.M. Bounds said, The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. In the 70s, some began to use gimmicks. I know that because I lived during the 70s. To get people to attend church. Worship services, you could say, became like three ring circuses. Friendly seeker movement began. And that became the norm. And now we are seeing the results of that. The mindset is... Give the people what they want. So a generation of people in the church today simply see the church as a social club. They see it as a venue of entertainment. And many churches or many people choose the church based on the best entertainment. You may wonder, well, what can be done about the condition of the church. Well, in one sense, nothing, as far as we're concerned. For the Scripture says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Only God can awaken His church to the truth. But on the other hand, we are to do all that Scripture demands. And we know that God has a means for bringing about His purpose. We must be obedient. We must pray. We must teach, preach, evangelize, and bring about reformation. We know that God in past history has used great men to bring reformation and awakening about. Jonathan Edwards, he used in preaching his great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Anger God. In those dark days, he awakened his church and thousands were brought to the gospel. We know that when evil seems to be winning in our day, we must continue to be faithful to preach the gospel because that's our only hope. The gospel is the only thing that will defeat evil. So we must continue to be faithful to preach the gospel. There's nothing wrong with the gospel. It's man that has a problem. And what we face isn't new in the church because these times of darkness have occurred over and over again throughout history. And then God appears in strong light and awakens His church. And it's a cycle. We see it. It's similar to what happened in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Now we have Paul warning Timothy in this particular passage about these things. And we are to receive the same warning today. Paul left Timothy there in Ephesus and he instructed him how he was to minister and how he was to call the elders to repentance and seek to restore order in the church. Now, the church at Ephesus had lost its way in certain areas. Paul, we see in Acts chapter 20, had warned those elders earlier. After he would leave, that there would come those who would be wolves in sheep clothing and try to destroy the flock. They were to be on their guard. And in less than 10 years, this had taken place. False doctrine had crept into the church there at Ephesus through false teachers, heresy, ungodliness, sinfulness, other things had transpired in the church. So Timothy was given this task to bring about reformation. This was a serious calling. Timothy was a young man, just as we read a moment ago. Jeremiah was a young man. Timothy was a young man. And Paul exhorts him and he gives him a weighty responsibility. And that weighty responsibility is seen in those words, O man of God. 
Those words are used 78 times in the Bible. Primarily they're in the Old Testament, but they're used both in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And we see the relationship that Timothy is to have as an elder of God. How relevant it is for him to make sure that he realizes that he is God's representative, his ambassador. And he must deal with these problems that are in the church. He must confront them. In 1 Timothy, Paul instructed Timothy three times in how he was to deal with false teachers. They were powerful and they had a great following. But Paul tells Timothy that he's to resist them, that he's to stand against them. He is to confront them with the truth of God's Word. Listen to what Paul says there in 1 Timothy 1.18. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well. So Paul is pointing out to him that he's in a spiritual warfare. And Timothy must be on his guard. He must teach the truth. Now the phrase according to the prophecy is simply referring to God's Word. Timothy is to teach and to preach God's Word faithfully, and he's to use God's Word to correct the error and to correct the false teachers. And of course, this is the calling of every pastor. Paul is telling pastors to not neglect their responsibility, not to neglect the gift that God has put in them. And what is that gift? Well, the gift is, of course, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. For years, there have been those who have neglected that responsibility of pressing that on men who would enter into the ministry. I can remember a number of years ago, my good friend Richard Smith, who I've mentioned many times from this pulpit, he said he went to an ordination council and the men, the man there, could not adequately even explain the gospel. Now, of course, this concerned Richard. If you know Richard, you know that would concern him. So he began to question the man and he gave him three verses. And he said, would you explain these three particular verses which had to deal with the gospel? And the man couldn't even do it. Now, the sad thing about it is that the other pastors in the ordination council began to get upset with Richard. (laughs) Not the man that Richard was putting on the hot seat but with Richard. And, of course, they were worried about offending this man that was there for the ordination council. But they should have been offended that this man couldn't answer these simple, basic questions that he should have been able to answer. And that's the reason why we have men in pulpits today that cannot teach the people what they need to hear, cannot confront the false teachers. Heresy has entered churches because of the failure of dealing with and examining men adequately. When men are led astray by false teachers, the church must speak out against that. I've stated that liberalism came into the church in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and they destroyed all the major denominations in the USA except for the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention, of course, was dealing with it and had to face it. We know that the first Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, was the leading liberal seminary among the other six or the other five seminaries in the SBC. Dr. Nettles and Dr. Bush wrote a book, Baptist and the Bible. One writer said, This became a bombshell and served as a compass on the stormy sea of the Southern Baptist battle for the Bible. And it did. And thank goodness God used that book to wake up many pastors so that they sought to get rid of the liberalism within the Southern Baptist Convention, and they were told it would take at least 10 years to accomplish that. One of the liberal professors, Dale Moody, at 
Southern Seminary who taught theology, who of course did not believe in creationism. He believed in evolution. He didn't believe in the wonderful doctrines of grace. Matter of fact, he said, look, we've left the other four. Let's leave once saved, always saved as well, because none of these are truly in the Bible. Uh, he talked about Dr. Nettles in Dr. Bush's book, and he called it critically unacceptable. Well, in my mind, he was critically unacceptable. But Dr. Nettles said the book is actually the fruit of a long after-dinner discussion where we knew that we were to proceed and actually publish a book which refuted the prevailing idea of the day, we would risk being regarded as renegades and suspects in the eyes of our professors and the Southern Baptist Convention leaders. And of course they were, but they stood to their guns and stood up and proclaimed the truth. And the book confirmed that Baptists had always held to the inerrancy of Scripture, that it was God-breathed. Matter of fact, it states the Holy Scripture is God's gracious gift to men to teach them, to correct them, to convey truth to them. Scripture is the truthful norm by which human thought is to be tested. And we continue to hold to that as Baptists. Now what is sad is that most church members have no idea what the battle for the Bible even meant. Most people didn't think there was even a problem within the churches. Too many simply were under what Paul says, having their ears tickled. And the same thing continues today. There are so many members in certain churches today who aren't committed. They don't even know what their church even believes and don't even understand God's work of salvation. They have no idea when it comes to the divinity and humanity of Christ. These heresies, heresies often start with these particular teachings. They begin to teach falsely about these doctrines. And that's the reason why there's so many cults. Every one of these cults that we have in our day today error in the divinity and humanity of Christ. I'm glad that next Sunday we'll begin the teaching on the incarnation of Christ that will deal with both of these, even though many of us understand we need to be reassured of them. We need to continue to understand these doctrines so that we might better teach these doctrines to those who need to understand them themselves. The problem is today that so many people flock to these false teachers. When 43,000 show up on Sundays to hear Joel Osteen give his positive thinking speech and 13 million by TV and worldwide 60 million, something's wrong. I mean, listen to what Joel Osteen says. If you want success, if you want wisdom, if you want prosperity and health, you're going to have to do more than meditate and believe. You must boldly declare words of faith and victory over yourself and your family. God will make you prosperous if you only declare the word of victory. He goes on and says, When I see thousands of people before me, it just doesn't come out of me to say, You guys are terrible. And you're going to hell. I'd rather say that God is a God of mercy. You've got to live an obedient life. And for every mistake you made, there is mercy. I believe we can do better. Now that is man's idea about how a person is saved. God's idea is to tell people that they're sinners, that they are terrible people, that they have disobeyed a God that is a holy God and that they deserve an everlasting hell. Until a person comes to see that he deserves that, he will not be saved. He will not flee to Christ. You can't simply tell a person, believe and you can be better. You must preach the gospel. And that's what Jonathan Edwards did in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If Paul was alive, I think he would have some very strong words for 
men like Joel Osteen and others like him. Paul's word would not change much from what he tells Timothy here in this passage. First and second, Timothy have much to say about the man of God. Now remember, we are looking at what a man of God is to be because we as a church need to be looking for another man of God to fulfill this pulpit or fill this pulpit in the future. And we need to be praying for that. So that's why we are doing these sermons. Uh, If you haven't been here for the other sermons, I encourage you to go back and listen to them because we must be wise. And as a congregation, we must seek the man that God would have us to have in the future. So we see that Paul gives us not only qualifications, but he also gives us the work. And Paul gives this charge to Timothy and he points out how serious this call is and how Timothy, as well as the other elders, must answer to God himself. There's nothing more important than what Timothy is called to do. This is a life and death issue, spiritually speaking. There's nothing more important than preaching the truth. A.W. Tozer said, The true minister is not won by his own choice, but by the sovereign commission of God. So a pastor must be aware that God is the one that has called him and set him apart sovereignly, and whom he must give an account to. And Paul's words are straightforward, and he points out that he expects immediate obedience to these words. As one writer says, a man about to die doesn't fool around with vain words when he's speaking to those he loves. Now you understand that Paul was right at the end of his life. We believe that Paul was martyred at 64 or 65. Well, we also believe that 2 Timothy was written around 64 or 65. So this book was the last book that Paul wrote. This letter was the last one he wrote and he writes it to Timothy and he's giving him more or less his final words. And our final words are hopefully our most important words to those that we love. And that's what Paul is doing here. He understands the issue and he's warning Timothy as well as the church there at Ephesus what they must do. So Timothy must pick up the mantle from Paul and follow what Paul has already accomplished. Now I know that was a long introduction, but I needed to lay the foundation for this particular passage that we're looking at. Now there's two characteristics about the man of God that I want us to look at in the man of God bringing glory to God and his church. First, he must have a passion to please God. Notice verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. This involves a godly and reverence fear. Realizing who God is and what God has done in calling the elder to shepherd his people. Now there's very little reverence and fear of God in our day. Worship services, as I've already mentioned, have come entertainment centers in many places, sad to say. Most Christians have no idea what the regulative principle is. The relative principle is how God has told us in Scripture how to worship Him. And God is dead serious about how He is to be worshipped. And those who violate this principle are in sin. I mean, we see it clearly in the Old Testament. Often, those who violate it, God's regulative principle, died. You remember Aaron's two sons, Nadad and Abihu? They began to play with the incense and offering. And what did God do? He struck them dead. We see how serious God was about misusing that which God has ordained for worship. We see it also in when the people were delivered from Egypt. The Israelites in the middle of the wilderness, they began to say, well, we're going to worship God our own way. Let's make a golden calf. And what happened? 
all of those that bowed down and worshiped that calf also experienced an abrupt ending to their life. And then there was Hophni and Phinehas, who were the sons of Eli. They too both died as a result of misusing that which God had given them for worship. And then remember just the individual as he was walking alongside of the Ark of the Covenant and he thought that he was going to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant. And remember what God has said, no one was to touch the Ark of the Covenant except for the priest. And he reached out to stabilize it and he fell dead when he touched it. See, God is serious about what he says. And we see even also in the New Testament how serious God was about Things when Ananias and Sapphira came to bring their offering there in worship and they were both struck dead. See, we as Christians must desire to obey what God has told us in His Word. Our longing as Christians should be to hear God say, Well done, thy good, faithful servant. Well done in what? Well done in your obedience to His Word. And all Christians should have a passion for God in his work, but it must be evident in the pastor, in the elder. R.L. Dabney said, The light of a holy example is the gospel's main argument. So, in other words, must be a holy example by the man of God. Spurgeon said, Our lives should be such as men may safely copy them. Paul said something similar to that, didn't he not, in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Now that's not just for pastors, that's for every single one of us as Christians. We are to seek to imitate Christ. And Timothy was seeking to do this, not simply to please Paul, but he had been converted and he wanted to please his heavenly father, knowing that one day he must give an account to his heavenly father at Christ appearing. But not only should we have a passion for God and His Word, but we also must have a passion to preach the Word of God, as he says there in verses 2 through 5. Pastors are called out of the world to preach the Word of God. John Scott said, We have no liberty in inventing our message but only to communicate the word which God has spoken and has now committed to the church. Now, what is the word that God has spoken and committed to the church? It's this book. We don't get up here and we say, well, you know, I received a word from the Lord today. No, I received His word, which is here, and that's what He is to proclaim. Timothy was not simply to share his own ideas. No, he was to share God's Word, preach the Word, as Paul says. Al Martin said, Sin must be brought home to the sinner by preaching the Word. Richard Baxter said, You cannot break men's heart by joking with them or telling them to snood tales or patch up gaudy oration." Men will not cast away their dearest pleasures upon a drowsy request or one that seems not to meet as men speak or to care much whether his request be granted. So he's saying the same thing, that sin must be brought home. Of course, we know that the Spirit of God is the one that must bring it home, but it comes through the preaching of the Word. Pastors have been given the deposit of the biblical truth as a trust to give God's people. So therefore, Paul is telling Timothy three ways that he is to accomplish this. Now, it can be approached in these three ways. First of all, intellectually. Second, moral. And third, emotionally. Some preachers are tormented by, or some people are tormented by doubt. Preachers can be too. And they need to be persuaded of God's promises in Scripture. But those that are in sin, they must be rebuked and called to repentance. Thomas Brooks said, He is the best preacher, 
Not that tickles the ear, but what? Breaks the heart. Others are torn it, torn it, torn it by fear and need encouraging. And God's Word addresses that and encourages us in the truth. So Paul speaks of those times that Timothy will have to proclaim these truths. He also speaks of those times when men will not listen to him. They will not listen, as he says there in verse 3, to sound doctrine. They won't endure correction and rebuking and encouraging. They won't, uh, they won't endure a 45-minute sermon. They want something that tickles the ears. And as a result, if a pastor comes in and preaches the truth and seeks to dwell upon the important doctrines, a lot of times they are shown the door. And that's sad in our day. A pastor's calling must be to preach the gospel, preach Christ crucified. Christ must be preached. Paul called pastors ambassadors which literally means to make known, to communicate, or to bring a message publicly, loudly. So Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, was commissioned. He was authorized by the Lord to communicate the gospel. And his task was to make Christ known to all who was alienated from God. He traveled across the Roman Empire, preaching the gospel, establishing churches. He proclaimed the gospel, Christ's life, burial, resurrection, and ascension. All of that so that man might understand that he could be reconciled with this God. And the apostles' bold proclamation of the gospel. We see that in Acts chapter 17, when he went to Thessalonica, and and he began to preach. And of course, he would always start in the synagogue. And then there in the synagogue, there would be those Jews that would be converted. And there were some that were converted. And as he proclaimed the gospel, they, they called him back and said, listen, we want to listen to you more. And then there was those that got upset because Paul was preaching the truth. And there were those that were being converted. And we see that there was a particular individual named Jason, I don't know if Jason knows his name. Healer, the Lord is salvation. And he had followed Paul and it says there, as a result of what Jason and others were doing, it says, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Of course, that was speaking of Paul and the preaching of the gospel. So we see that he must clearly preach the gospel so that men must be saved. So first, preaching must be grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ as set for in the entirety of Scripture. And Christ can be found in the entirety of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon said, As for myself, brethren, I cannot preach anything except Christ and His cross, for I know nothing else. And long ago, like the Apostle Paul, I determined not to know anything else save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Second, preaching Christ means preaching the great doctrines of the Bible. Such things as justification, sanctification, glorification, and God's providence. The entire Bible teaches these doctrines. And they all lead where? They all lead to Christ. They're all based upon Christ. They're grounded in Christ. Alexander McCarn, who was a great Baptist preacher back in the 1800s, he preached at his own church for 45 years. He said, a ministry of which the Christ who lived and died for us is manifestly the sinner. It does demand that all things shall lead to Christ and all teaching point to Him. Preach Christ does not exclude anything but prescribes the bearing and purpose of all. So Christ must be the center of our preaching. Third, preach Christ means preaching the demands of holiness. Christ Himself preached the demands of holiness. Now, do you have any idea where the main demands of holiness are preached by Christ? 
If you've been here for the last few years, if you don't know the answer to that question, I'm going to put you in timeout corner. It was in the Sermon on the Mount. There's the preaching of holiness in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he said in Matthew 5, 19? If you break the least commandment or the smallest commandment, And teach others to do the same. You will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But everyone who obeys God's law and teachings will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Many have lost sight of the fact that God intends that we be conformed to the image of the Son of God. How are we conformed to the image of the Son of God? By surrendering to Him. And then following him. Paul says in Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many. So if we're to be conformed to the image of his son, what does that mean? That means that we are to pursue holiness. The scripture says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we must pursue holiness. And once we have been changed by the grace of God, then we have a desire to pursue holiness. Obedience is a result of God's saving work in the incarnate Son and the Holy Spirit dwelling in man's heart. It is also easy for us to understand that when we have been converted, then we have a desire to live for Christ and the Holy Spirit Himself puts that desire in us so that we might present to our Savior our works that are pleasing to Him which come as a result of grace. Not our own effort, but the result of grace. We must understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is the motive and the means of all of our morality. The morality of the saints is called holiness. And it starts where? It starts at the cross of Calvary. And we must always begin there and we must also return there, remembering that we must take up the cross daily as true disciples and we should become more like Christ day by day as we grow in sanctification. Mere morality apart from the life of Jesus Christ is a great error. But that's what we see in our day. And even in most churches. We must realize that mere morality cannot save us. It is the grace of Christ that saves us. And as a result of that, He causes us to pursue holiness. Fourth, preaching Christ is saying, Thus saith the Lord. A pastor's duty is to make Christ known by also making His heavenly Father known. How He has revealed Himself and what He demands of each one of us. We must drive home that this truth of God must be obeyed. And if you're a Christian, you have a desire to obey it. That when we sin, we are sinning against a holy God understanding that God takes sin serious. Why does He take sin serious? Because Christ died for sin. Remember what Joseph realized? And he said, How then can I do this great wickedness and what? Sin against God. He realized that his sins were against God first and foremost. We have broken God's law. And we must, like David, confess that. David said what after he had sinned with Bathsheba? He said, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, of course, he had sinned against others, right? But yet he sees at this particular time the greatness of his sin and the greatness is against a holy God. This book reveals... How sinful we are. And how much we need a Savior to remove our sins. And if we avoid reading this book, 
We will avoid seeing our sin. That's one reason people don't read it. You know that? They don't want to see their sin. They don't want to see how guilty they are. If you avoid being under the preaching of the Word, you will avoid being exposed to your sin. That's one reason people don't come to be under the preaching of the Word. They don't want to be confronted with their sin. They want to hear someone say how good they are and how they can have a wonderful life apart from Christ. If they simply have victory faith, as Joel Osteen says. This is why it's so important, and I emphasize so often, do not forsake the assembling together of the brethren. Fifth, preaching Christ means preaching His admonition and His instructions, His Word. Pastors are to follow what Paul says when he speaks of Christ, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, Colossians 1.28. Warning every man can be translated, admonishing every man. One writer describes this action as putting sense in someone's head. Now a lot of people need some sense put in their head. Especially in our day and time. I mean, as my mama always used to say, they've lost their mind. And people today in our society, they've literally lost their mind. And you know what I'm talking about. When a guy thinks he's a girl and a girl thinks he's a guy, they've lost their mind. They need some sense put into their head. And that's just one illustration. I could go on and on, but due to time, I'm not going to go on and on. But people need sense put in there. What sense do they need to put in their head? Well, they need the Word of God. Now, this Word implies counseling a person that is straying away, correcting their belief, correcting their behavior, seeking to set them on the right path, A view of helping that person. And there's a lot of people out there that need what I'm talking about. Now who's to do that? Well, a pastor must do that. But the pastor's not the only one that can do it. You're being taught so that you can do it. Every one of us have that opportunity to do it. I guarantee it, most of you in here work with a person that needs some sense into their head. And God has placed you next to that person to help put sense into their head. So therefore, use the Word of God and put some sense into their head. Now, they may reject it, but your calling is what? To be faithful to that task. This is an activity that is designed to drive God's truth into their will. To place truth before them. It includes warning and rebuking and exhorting and to confront in order to correct and arouse the soul. And the intensity of this particular word is seen in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, when Paul is getting ready to lead the church at Ephesus, and he warns the church to watch. Watch out for what's about to happen. Remember, he says to them, For three years I have warned you. And he did not cease to warn them day in and day out. With tears he warned them. So the intent is to awaken man, to arouse the soul, to inspire a reflection, to promote repentance. See, sin is identified and sin must be addressed. Error must be exposed and warned against. Holiness revealed and encouraged in the life of a person. So doctrine must be proclaimed. Now, those that I've already mentioned must be taught. And they must make a connection. They must see that this book is a light unto my path. They must understand that without this I have no direction. So therefore I must know what this book says. And I must know how to live it out. Now, for instance, we seek to give every opportunity that we can here at this church to help people live out these truths. Not only do we have our worship service in the morning, we have a worship service in the evening, we have our prayer time and our Bible study on Wednesday night, we have a men's book study, a woman's book study, all of these particular opportunities to be able to learn, 
to be able to be led in the path of righteousness. I cannot force you. All I can do is encourage you. I'd have loved to have that room full yesterday of all the men in our church. I mean, we had a wonderful time of discussing about man headship and how important it is in our day and time. It's sad that some of you neglected that. You missed out on an opportunity to learn truth of what God's Word says about that. Not only did you miss out on that, you missed out on a good breakfast as well that David cooked for. But I mean, you understand what I'm saying? But again, I can't force you. I'm not going to browbeat you. I'm not going to take a a whip and whip you to try to get you to do it. No, all I can do is encourage you. A shepherd must lead Heard Al Martin talking about, I don't know if he experienced it himself or he heard someone else talking about it, but there in Israel, they were on a tour and the tour guy was talking about a shepherd leading his sheep. And he said that a shepherd always leads his sheep. He never gets behind his sheep and forces his sheep. Well, as they were going down the road in their bus, all of a sudden they see a shepherd behind the sheep forcing them. And of course, you know what the people said. Now, wait a minute. You told us a shepherd never walks behind and forces the sheep. And he tells the bus driver, stop the bus. He gets out. He walks over. And he comes back to the bus. And he says, guess what, folks? That shepherd was forcing those sheep. He was forcing them to slaughter. So we see that he was right. A shepherd leads the sheep, but yet there are those that are forced to slaughter. It's pastoral care to look into a man's eyes and bring the issue of sin that he must repent and that he must seek holiness, ensuring that sin is recognized and that it is repented of. Eternity is to be brought near Why? Because judgment is coming. And if he doesn't repent of his sins, and if he hasn't trusted in Christ and Christ alone, he will be judged by the Heavenly Father and by Christ Himself. Christ is to be emphasized as the one to whom man must look to in repentance and saving faith. A pastor must teach and instruct and train, whether in a formal or informal setting, It means that he must explain, expound the Word of God so that people are able to get a handle on it and grasp it in their life. And here the preachers work upon his understanding. Christ is proclaimed by means of careful and systematic instruction. Define truth and clearly direct people to obey that truth and imparting into them the things that God teaches us. That's His main task. And when Paul speaks about preaching in all wisdom, it is Christ who is the total wisdom. He is our surety. And therefore we must preach the wisdom of God, which is Christ Himself. And then we see there in verse 5, He gives Timothy again the warning to be watchful in all things. Endure affliction. The affliction is going to come, Timothy. When you preach the word, you're going to occur those who don't like the things that you preach. And you're going to be afflicted. But stand faithful and continue to do the work of evangelists. What is the work of an evangelist? Preaching the gospel again. Preaching the truth, pressing the truth upon them. And in doing that, he what? Fulfills his ministry. So he must continue to be faithful to the task that God has given him. And he goes on in the next verses and talks about, he talks about himself, how he has been poured out at a drink often and how he's fought the good fight. And again, as I've already mentioned, these are the last words that Paul is speaking before his death. And finally, he says, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day and not 
to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. All who love Christ. Now there's a lot of people that say they love Christ. I mean, I guarantee it, if you go tomorrow in your office and you say, everyone in there, just walk up to them and say, do you love Christ? I guarantee it, the majority of them will tell you, yes, I love Christ. So then in other words, you're telling me that you love His commandments. And you obey His commandments. Now, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? Uh, So where were you yesterday? Were you in worship yesterday? Well, you know, I I wasn't in worship yesterday. Well, I thought you said you love Christ. Well, I do. So you love Him, but you don't obey Him. That, That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, get into some of the discussions so that you might be able to drive truth into people's heart. They must see their sinfulness and they must see their need of Christ. They must see their need of forgiveness. That is preaching the gospel. That is being an evangelist. We're all to do the work of an evangelist, especially pastors. But members are not off the hook. We're all to be evangelists. To look to opportunities to preach the gospel to those that we come in contact with. Pressing upon them that they are sinners in need of salvation. And then unless... They come to true repentance and to look to Christ and Christ alone for their salvation that they will be lost for eternity. We must give them the bad news so that they might be willing to hear the good news that Christ came to save the unrighteous, to reconcile them to the Heavenly Father so that they might have life and life everlasting. And that's the teaching that Paul is giving to Timothy, but also to us this day, pastors as well as members, to hear the truth and obey the truth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. That you did not leave us in our own ignorance, but you gave us your very words through men of God who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these truths. And we pray that we might understand these truths, Father, so that we might first and foremost apply them to our own lives and then be able to teach others these truths, Father. How we pray, Father, that your Spirit might work in this place even this day to bring about conviction of sin and obedience to Your Word. Do not allow us, Father, to leave this place as we came, but, Father, change us by Your grace. Make us men and women of God. Work in our lives so that we might truly have a desire to pursue holiness and be like Christ. We thank You, Father, that You are working by Your Spirit in the lives of Your people to bring honor and glory to your name. And we pray, Father, that we would be faithful to that task that you have given us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his glory. Amen.